Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Maya Roberson. Ms. Roberson completed her undergraduate studies at Brown University, where her focus was in public health, after which she was appointed to the university's board of trustees upon her graduation in 2016. In 2018, she completed her MSPH in epidemiology at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. She is currently a fifth-year PhD candidate in the Department of Epidemiology at Carolina, where she studies health equity and cancer care delivery using big data. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. So I reached out to you on Twitter after reading your recent paper, which was published in February 2020, and it was titled Premenopausal Gynecologic Surgery and Survival Among Black and White Women with Breast Cancer, which really piqued my interest. I'd like to talk about this paper more in depth, but first, would you please tell us more about you and how you came to be studying where you are today? Yeah, so I am deeply influenced in my current studies by where I grew up and where I came from. So Mm -hmm. I am from a super small town along the Appalachian Trail in Pennsylvania, uh, the Poconos Mm -hmm. area. And I was the first in my family to go to college and went to Brown, where I was introduced to the wonderful field of public health. And in my courses at Brown, that was when I first developed the language to realize what I had experienced uh, back in my hometown related to healthcare and health, uh, healthcare delivery. And um, just a, a little bit of context about how small we're talking. Uh, we in my hometown we had uh, a single primary care provider practice, and that was the only medical care we had growing up. And it was uh, a father and son. Duo, and when I was in high school, the uh, father was in his late 80s uh, and his son was in his 60s, and that was the extent of the healthcare we had. Uh, my goodness, in my town, yeah, so a, a really unique situation. And truthfully, it wasn't until Brown uh, that I realized that that was, that was not the reality uh, of where folks grew up, uh, that in everywhere else, and in, in, uh, most of in the United States that there are much more complex medical systems and you don't just have a father and son uh, practice where you get seen by the same doctors that see your parents. Um, And this really got me interested in healthcare delivery now that I had developed the language for it. And it was taking cancer epidemiology as a sophomore at Brown, which is one of the really unique experiences to take a class so advanced at such an early stage that I began to hone my focus uh, in on cancer. And it was one specific guest lecture in that class uh, done by uh, Dr. Melissa Clark, who ended up becoming one of my senior thesis advisors, where she talked about disparities in cancer screening. And when I saw the result of those disparities for, for Black women in in particular, to me, that was one of the most unacceptable things that I probably had learned about uh, during my studies. And I wanted to pursue a career where I could work towards mitigating and ultimately eliminating those disparities. So right after uh, my time at Brown, I matriculated into the master's to PhD program in epidemiology at UNC, uh, where I've continued to study similar issues related to cancer care, specifically for Black women 
And that's mm-hmm. kind of the circuitous path to how I got to uh, the specific area of study that I'm working on now. Still, how do you and how do you go from rural Pennsylvania? I'm actually from Kentucky, so that's not. I mean, the eastern part of Kentucky is in the Appalachian Mountains or has the Appalachian Mountains, which I think they call Appalachia. So I'm yeah. interested that you say Appalachia. So how do you end up from there to Brown? Did you know someone who had gone to Brown? Like, what was the path for you? I did not actually. Um, mm-hmm. I was a Questbridge College Prep scholar in high school, which was uh, a basically a, a talent recruitment program to get uh, more first generation and low income students enrolled in the Ivy Plus institutions. And I, at, when I was in high school, I attended uh, a college fair in New Haven at Yale, actually, where they had. Uh, the various Ivy Plus institutions and um, handing out their pamphlets and flyers and and what have you. And that was the first time that Brown really entered my radar. I thought that I would stay in Pennsylvania, um, probably Penn State or uh, University of Pittsburgh was what was often done uh, with folks in my high school. But then Uh, I realized that there was a whole new world out there. And one of the things that was really a turning point about that uh, particular admissions fair was that I realized that the Ivy Plus institutions were actually substantially more affordable than my local state institutions, um, oddly enough. And so that's what really piqued my interest and um, opened up a a wide variety of uh, opportunities for me. Yeah, I've been focusing a lot in my shows lately on mentorship. So I just was wondering if like a particular person reached out to you, but it sounds like there are more systems in place to reach out to um, folks, especially first generation folks who don't have that, you know, established network of people. Um, I always find that interesting. Um, Sounds like Brown was lucky to have you. Um, And because I've never encountered a trustee who wasn't like over the age of 65. Um, (laughs) Can you tell me how someone who's basically leaving becomes a trustee? Is this something unique to Brown? How does that work? Yeah, so there are a couple of institutions, uh, Brown being one of them, that reserve slots on their board for recent alumni uh, to, to participate in the governing body structure. I, I don't know that Brown is the only place that does this, but I know it's one of the few where those recent alumni are actually voting members. We are more than symbolic. Uh, we actually take part uh, in in the governing process, whereas some other institutions have these slots available, but uh, it's more just for show and like with po- training wheels or something. You correct. don't actually get yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. there isn't that that deeper level of engagement. Um, So I didn't know I was being vetted uh, to be a trustee, as it turns out. Um, So you didn't know to be on your best behavior or something? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You know, it, it, reflecting back on it, it, it's so funny to me, because I, I mean, I was involved in so many different things when I was at Brown, women in science and engineering, first generation college students, all sorts of things. And so I, my senior year, Right before I I had graduated, I had gotten an email from an administrator saying that a couple of current trustees wanted to talk to me about my Brown experience. 
And I thought that this was just some, oh, let's talk to a handful of involved seniors to hear how their time at Brown has gone. And little did I know that that was actually my vetting. (laughs) That's probably maybe better. I don't know. Maybe you were less nervous about it. No? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting thinking back to it because I honestly talked a lot about how at first Brown was particularly unwelcoming for me as a Black first-generation college student. Um, And I guess that's part of the reason why they ultimately ended up selecting me is because they needed, they were missing that voice. And Mm. um, I, once I had found out that that was what had happened, I was like, oh no, maybe I shouldn't have gone on. (laughs) Now I have to fix the entire institution myself. No, I'm just kidding. Um, No, actually, so I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but uh, I just, I was wondering why was it, if you want to expand upon that, why was it unwelcoming for you as a first generation? Uh, black American student at Brown. Was there one thing in particular or was it just being so far away from home or the change from small town to Providence or? I think it was some combination of the, all of the above of what you had just mentioned. I had a Mm -hmm. pretty rocky uh, freshman year because the academic adjustment was striking for me. Mm -hmm. um, And I was entirely academically unprepared and I, Mm -hmm. I don't know who, who was at fault there? I mean, I coming from a super rural high school, I kind of had a sense going in that I would be a step behind my peers, but I wasn't ready for how much I would be. And I think that that was compounded by not having great advising either uh, my first mm-hmm. year. So I was assigned an advisor who was uh, a non-teaching administrator. Uh, so they really weren't all that in touch mm. with the, the classes and the various departments and things like that. And I was also mm. assigned a peer advisor who was an upperclassman, but was the son of a professor uh, mm. at Brown. And so I really didn't get that support that I needed. I ended up dropping a class my first semester because I had signed up for something that was just had me in over my head and mm. had a hard time finding a, a good social support circle. And I think I speak for many first generation college students there where it was, I mean, they recruited us there and it was very fragmented. There was no sense of community. And uh, so mm-hmm. I, I really, I struggled quite a bit um, my first year. And it wasn't until uh, late in my spring semester when I took healthcare in the United States and I asked the professor of that course. Ira Wilson, if he would become my sophomore advisor, uh, because I really enjoyed his class. And I was thinking about uh, majoring in public health. And I'm really fortunate that he said yes. I mean, he's someone that I still talk to pretty much monthly now to this Mm -hmm. day. And I honestly think that truthfully, he rescued my Brown experience and helped guide me on the right path. And I felt like with him, there were no stupid questions. Um, And so that made it a bit easier on the academic side. Socially, it was still a little bit tough, but I was at least squared away academically and have been really glad to see the progress that Brown has made in supporting first generation and black students uh, over time. I mean, now there's a center for first gen students and an actual sense of community. And thinking about the alternate reality, if I could have started over again, where I might have ended up with the support structure in place from the outset. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. Cause I, I've, 
I've been thinking a lot about how to be a better advocate for people who are underrepresented in medicine. And I've been thinking a lot about how every time I hear someone talk about diversity, um, it's always someone who's in a underrepresented group, you know, and I, I kind of think it's unfair and and you can correct me if you don't agree, but I kind of think it's unfair to put all the onus for supporting underrepresented groups on the underrepresented groups. That to me, it just doesn't make sense. It's like, it has to be the responsibility of the people in power to help people who are finding their way just as much, or if not more than the people in those groups, because, you know, if, if, if there aren't people like you in the roles that you want to fill, what model do you have? You know? So I don't know. I, it's like something that I think I should have been thinking about every day of every step along every way that I've taken and I haven't been. And I'm, it's, it's something that it's sort of like being hit in the face with a frying pan over and over again. Um, but it's interesting to hear you say that about Brown because I always just assumed it was so progressive and, uh, that they had that stuff figured out. But I'm also glad to hear that you, I mean, you haven't been gone that long that it's changed enough for you to feel that way over four years or something. So. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, yeah. and I, I agree completely about the the sentiment that you express. And it's honestly why I have a little bit of hope about what the Academy can become. Um, yeah. Just what's the Academy, the academia, higher education oh. overall. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And it's right. okay. uh, support of underrepresented scholars. Um, yeah. and, and I mentioned that because I mean, one of the things that I appreciated the most about Ira Wilson is that I didn't have to explain white privilege to him. He understood what it was and as uh, a senior faculty white male leveraged on my behalf and continues to do so even in my graduate career uh, and has really gone up to bat for me and has been a support network for me, acknowledging that we may not share the same identities, but he can still be part of that support system. And I, I mean, I'm not the only black student or scholar of color that he's done this for. And I I wish that more folks had that much of an open mind. Uh, And I mean, I think sometimes folks think that working across difference is insurmountable. Like, oh, I don't share an identity with this person. I don't know how I can be useful for them. And that's just fundamentally not true. I think no, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's the exact same way you would be helpful for someone who looks exactly like you. It's yeah. just, you know, it's like <laughs> speaking up on their behalf. And, and now, you know, when I see a trainee and I think, oh, they're not interested in research. And I think, well, how do I know they're not interested? You know, if I just plop some data in front of them and I say, let's write this paper up together. Because I think half the battle when you're someone who hasn't done something before is thinking and looking at the person you see who's doing it and thinking, well, they have this figured out. I'm never going to be able to figure that out. I mean, I felt that way. I was not from a academic family. I had a lot of privilege, but I wasn't, I didn't know how to write up a paper. I thought I, I tell this, I told this story on a show that I'll release later, but when someone invited me to journal club, when I was in medical school, I thought it was a place that you sat around and wrote in a journal together. Yeah. And I was like, um, I don't want to do that in public. Why would I tell you my feelings? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't want to do that with you. So, I mean, you just have to like sort of present opportunity, it seems the same you would do for anybody else, you know, and then recognizing that without the experiences I was brought up with, I probably wouldn't be where I am. And so 
I, I keep digging into people's stories, which I find so fascinating that there's there's usually a person somewhere along the way who like grabbed your hand and said, no, you're just you're going the wrong way. Just come this way with me and we'll figure it out. You know, and you have to present that opportunity to someone in a way that doesn't seem confrontational or overwhelming. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I think I would just add slightly to that. It's the same as what you would do for someone who looks like you. But I think it's also important to acknowledge the barriers that trainees face uh, from underrepresented groups too so it's like a both and kind of situation Mm -hmm. we need to be Mm -hmm. doing what we'd be doing for any student or trainee or junior faculty or shoot sometimes even senior faculty Um, but we need to acknowledge that the paths are different and do come with very tangible barriers for uh, folks from underrepresented backgrounds. Yes. Yes. But I, yes, I, I agree. It's a, it's just a, you I think it's, you can't be afraid to help people just because you might not know the perfect way to do it at first. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So now let's move on to talk about your paper, which is the reason why I reached out to you in the first place. Um, uh, Let's see. So you, um, this uh, covered such an important topic, one that informs how patients are being managed and counseled around a decision that's made in what I can only assume is a time of great stress. So can you tell me about um, what question your study sought to answer and how you came to be interested in this particular subject? Yeah, so this paper was actually my master's thesis uh, from Carolina, and I came to UNC knowing that I wanted to work in cancer disparities, as I had mentioned, and wanted to gain experience with the Carolina Breast Cancer Study, a really rich resource uh, at UNC, and I developed this paper topic in consultation with my advisor, Whitney Robinson, and as I was trying to think of master's thesis topics, I kept proposing super huge dissertation size things, and I didn't want it to be in graduate school forever. For um, a decade. They were like, uh, maybe not. Maybe you don't want to do a master's thesis. It's going to take you four years. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So this was a piece of, of something that, that she had started working on previously since her whole research portfolio is on uh, racial disparities in gynecologic health. And uh, we decided to go for something that truthfully wasn't all that innovative of a research question. I mean, folks had studied uh, the relationship between gynecologic surgery and breast cancer survival uh, Mm in other populations. The key difference here was that uh, we had a pretty racially diverse sample. So all of these prior studies were conducted in entirely white populations. So we really sought to confirm the finding uh, that these surgeries, uh, hysterectomy with bilateral oophorectomy is protective against uh, survival in women with breast cancer in a more diverse study population uh, than had been previously included. So that was a nice master's thesis sized uh, investigation um, since, as I mentioned, the, the study question wasn't all that new, but the data that we were using uh, definitely added to the conversation of what had previously been done. Mm-hmm. Um, so UNC has a strong history as an institution of learning in public health. 
Um, I actually have had someone on the podcast who was my former co-resident who also got her master's at UNC, but hers was in um, her, or her master's in public health as well. Um, and access to data like the Carolina Breast Study that you were talking about was key to your findings. So can you talk about the importance of these data sets and the importance of so-called big data in the field of epidemiology? I think the uh, onset of big data and epidemiology has been both a blessing and a curse. Um, Ooh, I want to hear that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and curse. Okay. Um, I think that it has been a blessing in the sense that uh, it has allowed us to include populations that have been historically not included. Uh, and the depth of data that is now able to be obtained um, through combining surveys with healthcare records, and in the case of the Carolina Breast Cancer Study, they also have uh, genetic and biologic data and tumor samples. Uh, so we can really get at all different aspects uh, of health issues. In this particular uh, case, it's it's breast cancer, but I mean, big data is everywhere in epidemiology now. Yes, uh, it is. <laughs> and and probably in all sorts of other fields. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the major downsides of it, and I mean, the Carolina Breast Cancer Study didn't have this issue because it's not that big in the whole landscape of big data. Um, but when we're dealing with these data sets that potentially have tens of thousands or even millions uh, of people included, First, we in, we increase our chance of potentially incidental findings because these populations are so big, just yeah. random things might come out as statistically significant and maybe overinterpreted, uh, uh-huh. w- which is concerning. I think the thing that concerns me more is having all quantitative research teams working on these sorts of questions without uh, someone who has experience in social sciences or liberal arts. Uh, so one of the things that I hadn't mentioned yet is that I feel like my, my public health research, my public health practice is deeply informed by my time in my courses in the Africana Studies Department at Brown. And I view mm-hmm. those uh, as equally important to me as my epidemiology causal inference classes mm-hmm. because it provides me a lens through which I look at these data. I mean, these aren't just numbers. These are people and who led very rich lives. And I worry that without the uh, consideration of underlying social factors that uh, we lose a lot of the, the nuance and complexity of what's actually happening in these populations. I mean, this is happening right now with COVID related mm-hmm. uh, issues as well, where the historical uh, factors that have led to the current crisis are being omitted just for the sake of getting information out uh, and out of these larger uh, population-based studies. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I agree. And it's, um, it's also takes, I think it takes some of the the focus away from the people who are doing the research now are not only epidemiologists, they're also computer scientists. And I, I just wonder if, you know, a hundred years ago, what were they doing? How are they doing this work? Was it 
face-to-face data collection? Like, how are they getting their numbers, you know? Because it's so different now because health systems can sort of de-identify and harvest data from a clinical setting. And then the epidemiologist is the one doing the population-based study. So maybe that doesn't make sense. But to no, me, it, I mean, just it, seemed... it makes complete sense. And that's yeah. something that I think about often. I mean, something yeah. as simple as like, how is race collected in a study, um, yeah. particularly ones that involve big data? Did a real person at some point self-report their own race? Uh, in clinical settings, was a staff member, front desk person just randomly assigning people's race i mean unfortunately that that happens Um, that's incredible to me i don't doubt it but (laughs) now that you say it of course but it's like why would you and then also you know you know folks who identify with more than one like how many options were they given were they allowed to check more than one box like there's so many things that you can i don't know and um i sometimes uh, like I get into these big data things and people will bring me questions and they'll say, well, what about this diagnosis? And I look at it and I'm like, I've never even heard of that kind of cancer. Like, I don't know why that's popping up in your database. I'm a little bit worried. Like what year is that from? You know, like, is that from like 1982 or something? I, um, anyway, so good and bad, like you said, I guess positives and negatives. Um, so, um, can you talk a little bit about the methods you use to analyze the data and you can be as general or as specific as you like? Yeah. So in this study, we conducted a time to event analysis to assess uh, how long women uh, had survived after their breast cancer diagnosis um, and looked at women who had had uh, no surgery Uh, who had had hysterectomy with ovarian conservation prior to their diagnosis and hysterectomy with bilateral oophorectomy after their diagnosis. And one of the great things about this study is that we had really uh, robust and long-term follow-up. So our, I believe- Wasn't your average follow-up like, wasn't it? Was it like almost? I, I don't remember. It was like a couple of decades, wasn't it? I, I think it, our median yeah. survival time was sixteen or seventeen years. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we were able to really look at the long-term uh, effects that these procedures might have on these women. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, and what were the what were the findings of your study? If you just had it like your elevator pitch, and then did anything stand out to you as particularly unexpected? So we found that the protection uh, of hysterectomy with bilateral oophorectomy for breast cancer survival uh, was consistent in both black and white women. We had a little imprecision in our uh, estimates because there were fewer black women overall, but generally the results were consistent, which we expected. The yeah. unexpected thing and was wonderful about the depth of the Carolina breast cancer study is that we were also able to stratify by uh, if women had a family history of breast cancer or not, uh, which no Mm. prior study in this area had done. And what we Mm. found there was that the overall association that we were seeing for the protectiveness of hysterectomy and bilateral oophorectomy was almost entirely driven by the protective effect in solely in women who had a family history of breast cancer, uh, which was really interesting and unexpected. And we kind of speculated a little uh, about why that uh, might have happened. But ultimately, we were not the the best designed study to uh, 
uh, further investigate that question. Um, but it was definitely not something that we had expected to find. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question for a future study. That's very interesting that it was being sort of pushed by that certain subgroup. Um, and that's, I guess that's the great thing about big data. A lot of pathology studies, because we study certain kinds of tumors, they're so small that we never have enough power to make those kinds of lovely conclusions. So um, it's just a little different. Um, so one of your areas of interest is women's health, especially as it relates, as you've talked about, to healthcare access in the African-American uh, population. Your current state, North Carolina, has a much greater proportion of that population than that of your alma mater and my um, current home of Rhode Island. Um, how has this difference in demographics changed your research, your data, your study designs, what you're able to do? I think living in North Carolina has definitely shifted my research focus towards uh, the southeastern United States, in part because that's where the disparities are the worst for mm. name your health outcome. Uh, mm -hmm. So I mentioned earlier that, I mean, what really motivated me to even go down this line of research in the first place was a random guest lecture in my cancer epidemiology class my sophomore year, where I had first learned about uh, cancer disparities uh, among Black populations. And so I, by coming to UNC for grad school, uh, I figured that that could be my way of chipping away at uh, these disparities in places where it's uh, especially prominent. Uh, what's also been great uh, about being down here is getting to work with so many Black clinicians as well mm. um, in a way that I, I don't, I mean, I'm sure it's possible elsewhere, but not uh, so much in the Northeast. Um, Definitely not. Rhode Island has, um, I looked it up for our show. I mean, I think the largest um, minority population here is um, Hispanic folks, but hardly any um, black Americans. So I definitely can understand that. Um, and I don't know about the town you grew up in, but I'm guessing that those two doctors were not. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we were one of the only black families um, growing up. Yeah. I think that there were 12 black kids in my graduating class. Uh, mm. So we, we were very few in numbers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been wonderful to to engage with this work in a meaningful way but also personally it's been nice to be in a place where i wake up and see black people every day and i i go to unc and i see black professors yeah. and other black students and black physicians as well so in terms of yeah. my overall i guess mental well-being to situate mm -hmm. myself to do this work i i think i'm in the right place that's awesome that's awesome plus it's beautiful so yeah. It's a great place to be. Um, so if we may step back a bit, can you talk about epidemiology and how you came to be interested in this field? And I will disclose that I am married to an epidemiologist, and when he gets going, sometimes he loses me in the weeds. So <laughs> you can do that if you like. But have you always loved math and computers? Because that's kind of when people look at me sideways when I tell them what my husband does. I'm like, well, he's kind of like a scientist who studies disease at a population level, but it requires a lot of math and computers. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, so, and also what was it like to enter this field as I assume an underrepresented person? Cause I don't know very many um, black women epidemiologists. So there are a few of us, we're small and mighty, yeah. uh, but we're yes. getting there. <laughs> um, 
but it, it, it's funny because I I hated math for a really long time, um, and again, like thinking back to my high school experience, I mean. I feel like sometimes my small town is in the 1950s or 60s for a lot of reasons, but one of them was very gendered expectations. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I mean, in high school, we were basically told that like women couldn't be good at math, uh, that it, it wasn't yeah. a, a feminine, <laughs> uh, yeah. if, if you will. Did they make a poodle skirt to school? I mean, this sounds... <laughs> you know, like sometimes when I describe it out loud, it, it honestly sounds like it's an, like an entirely different decade still. Yes, um, yes. But I, you know, I, I didn't grow up like thinking that math was something that I could or should be good at uh, just because of how I was conditioned. And my first uh, semester at Brown, the class that I had dropped was a statistics class, which uh, is, as you probably know, fundamental to epidemiology. Uh, yeah. but then I had and a- also painful. So yeah. You know. <laughs> um, but then yeah. I had a turning point and realized that I was just in the wrong statistics class. And oh, that's good. Found yeah. uh, a statistics class in the applied math department uh, instead of I can't even remember where the first one was taken. I've tried to wipe that from my memory. Yeah, that's um, okay. We don't need to relive that. I don't want to put you through that. Yeah. Um, but in this applied math statistics class, I realized that you know what? I'm actually pretty good at this. Uh, when uh-huh. I'm taught uh, and mentored by by the correct people, and not only am I good at it, but I enjoy it uh, as well. And so it, it's kind of interesting that I ended up in an epidemiology program because my senior thesis was qualitative. Uh, mm. I decided to do interviews of primary care providers and Black women who were in the screening range uh, for mammograms. And I ended up in epidemiology, I think, because I still felt that strong uh, quantitative leaning, but I feel like I'm informed every day by that original qualitative work. And I think where I'll end up landing is in a mixed methods, uh, bring Mm -hmm. quant and qual together to kind of uh, mash up both of my skills. But I mean, I had no idea, maybe even uh, mid-undergrad that this is where I would end up in such a quant heavy field because I just didn't think that it was accessible to me. Yeah. That's, I've been also thinking a lot about this kind of thing too. I was listening to an interview today and they were, I was listening to this person talk about the psychology and how, um, if you tell people right before a test, they've done these studies. I don't know. I'm sure they're famous in the field of psychology, but you, you know, you sit down a group for a test and if you remind them before they take the test, like it's a, gr- a group of women and you remind them before they take the test that they're women, right? And they know that women aren't supposed to be good at math. They do less well on the test. Or if you have, it, because they, you know, you, if like Asian people are supposed to be good at math, right? These are stereotypes. I'm not saying I believe them, but if you have like a group of Asian women and before they take their test, you remind them that they're Asian instead of reminding them that they're women, they will do better on the test. So it's like this idea of women being told you're not supposed to be good at math, you know, like you're not going to do that well. Then you grow up and you think that you can't be an epidemiologist, you know, and that starts. I don't know, in kindergarten or something? Yeah, I mean, it it, it starts early. And I think it's the, for me, it was definitely the 
compounding effect of my race and my gender. So I was told that I wasn't good at math, but I was also told that I wasn't going to be college bound um, and that AP classes and honors classes probably wouldn't be worth my time in high school. So I had the double whammy of really not believing that I could succeed. Um, And it, it turns out that I, I just needed the right people in the front of the classroom to be able to. Yeah. And it's, it just reminds those of us in positions of power, though I barely consider myself in a position of power, but on paper, I am a professor at an Ivy League institution, which is just something I can hardly even say with a straight face. But I just have to remind myself that, you know, it's, it's basically, it's my job to make sure that people who are living out this experience as maybe the first one in their family to remind them of ways that they can succeed, you know, and to show them paths for opportunity. But it's just, if you're not, it's like one of those things, like I remind residents when we're looking at slides together and diagnosing things, I'll say, I don't think that this is X, like this rare thing, but if you don't even think about it, you're never going to see it. You have to think about it. You have to at least try. And so it's just something I think I'm going to have to think about every day. Like, how can I do better at that? So it's, it annoys me that people told you you weren't college bound. I want to go <laughs> slap those people. <laughs> that, that would probably be assault. Um, so you talk in your paper about how women in the Black community have worse outcomes for breast cancer in particular, which is something I think is pretty well established. Um, do you think that this is going to get better as members of that community, which you are one of, um, have greater representation in the scientific community? Do you think maybe that people just haven't been asking the right questions? That's a little bit tough. I mean, I think people have been working on cancer disparities for for a while. I think that where there's been issues, and I think Black and the Ivory uh, had kind of illuminated, is when we have all-white research teams, I think, as you were kind Mm -hmm. of alluding to. So Mm -hmm. I don't know that uh, folks were necessarily asking the wrong questions. I wouldn't go that far but i would say that the right people probably weren't engaged at all parts of the process um mm. and this paper that just came out um out of vanderbilt uh, i believe the senior authors dr consuelo wilkins uh, looked at medical trust or trustworthiness of medical studies uh, among racial and ethnic minorities and posited this reframe that instead of asking minorities like why do you have medical mistrust things of that nature putting it on researchers to say are we trustworthy to these communities and i think that that's an important reframe that applies to health equity health disparities work outside of cancer i think that that should be something that's considered uh across the board because academic institutions, medical institutions have done some really heinous things over history to black folks, indigenous folks, uh, to all sorts of groups. And I, I think that researchers really need to reckon with that and think about how that might impact their own studies. Uh, and I think that the, the start to that is greater engagement of researchers from these communities that are infected and also greater patient and advocate engagement uh, in the research process as well. And I know that we're slowly getting there uh, in cancer, bringing more diverse voices to the table uh, outside of researchers. But to me, there can never be too much of that. 
Yeah, that's a good point that all along the way you need diverse voices and um, making sure that people are being included, especially in research that can impact them and something as important as, you know, like what therapy you get or what surgery we plan um, when you do, if you do run into a a situation where you need it. So yeah, exactly. um, And I think that what often happens is that these folks are brought in at the recruitment stage. So, Oh, Mm -hmm. how do we bring in uh, diverse individuals into our study and then kind of dropped off after that. But it needs to be across the whole, it needs to be a study design before you even get to recruiting folks, Um, diverse researchers, diverse uh, patient engagement needs to occur uh, across the board before we recruit, after we recruit, uh, and in the dissemination of findings as well. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, all that other stuff about who's, who's collecting the data, are they self-identifying? Like, how is that all being planned? And, um, it's something that if you're, it's almost like if you're a person who's never had to think about that, like me, then you're not someone who would think about that. And they can get overlooked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not in, I mean, necessarily in a malicious way, but just in like a fully ignorant kind of way, which is no excuse, but um, it needs to be better. And I think it's like, it's like when you see those pictures about people deciding whether or not birth control is going to be covered on a national healthcare plan, and every single person at the table is a man. And you just, I mean, you just want to scream, right? And flip the table over because you're like, what? You have never had to think about this. Like, oh, not in the way that... podcast. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? It's like, if you don't even bring the people in the room who are being impacted by the decision, yeah. why are you even bothering? It doesn't make any sense. So, um, I mean, I'm not trying to say that men don't have to think about like family planning and stuff, but it's just like, it's not the same. You need to have those people in the conversation. So I agree. Um, and I'm so glad we're having this conversation. And now... To get into the heavy part about just our country, what we're going through right now, um, I added this in after you and I read this over together, but I, I've been thinking a lot about this op-ed that I read from the Washington Post from a writer and former NPR host named Michelle Norris. I don't know if you know who she is, but um, she's an American treasure and she is a Black American and she has a very interesting history, but she wrote a recent op-ed that, and in it she said that we are witnessing a stunning moment of atonement. And that phrase has just been like going through my head for like the last week, a stunning moment of atonement. It's like, it's perfect. Yes, exactly. On top of a pandemic that I think has made almost everyone I know um, have their nerves raw and on edge. Everyone's worried about themselves and their families. And now we're also contending, and I think these facts are related, with um, a recent egreg- egregious examples of police violence against the Black community and calls for change, protests, people in the street. They're getting so loud. People are actually listening. Things are changing on the policy level, though a lot of people say not enough. Um, and I think people in the scientific community are doing some long needed soul searching about how to be better advocates for the black American community and underrepresented groups in our rank. And I obviously cannot come from the same place you could. So I just wanted to give you like a wide open opportunity to talk about this in whatever way um, you like and what this time has been like for you. Yeah. I think that that's a really powerful phrase that you just included from that op-ed and I, I hadn't read it yet and now yeah. have it on my uh, list yeah. of things to do that we're witnessing a, a stunning moment of atonement. Yeah. 
I really hope so. Um, I really hope that the uprisings that are happening now do lead to concrete policy change that will improve the lives of Black Americans. I remain slightly cynical uh, about how much will happen now um, under this current federal administration that has been a little bit apathetic to uh, issues related to police brutality and also coronavirus uh, that's disproportionately Mm -hmm. affecting Black Americans. So it's been... I I have kind of mixed emotions about it. Um, I'm glad to see policy change happening at the state and local levels, but federal intervention right now uh, on police violence, on uh, COVID-19 would dramatically improve the lives, health, and well-being of millions of Black Americans uh, right Mm -hmm. now. And uh, I think as you had kind of alluded to, that this moment of atonement is happening uh, in various sectors. I mean, it's also happening in academia right now, too, uh, for, as you had mentioned, being better advocates for underrepresented groups. Um, And similarly, I I hope that that leads to concrete policy change uh, for not just the inclusion and retention uh, of folks from these groups, but also the thriving uh, of, yeah. of folks from these groups. I think that that's not emphasized enough that recruitment is one thing, re- keeping people there, retaining them is another. But do people actually enjoy being at the institutions that they're at, doing the work that they do? Do they feel valued and supported? I feel like those aren't the conversations that we're having uh, in academia yet, and, and we need to be. And those are going to be difficult. They're going to be hard. and. Uh, departments and universities are going to find out that they've really fostered unwelcome climates uh, and are going to have to do some soul searching about how to uh, really do the structural change that will make better environments for for folks in these uh, institutions. Yeah. And uh, also, like I mentioned before, not expecting people from the underrepresented groups to fix these problems when they're not the ones in power who can fix the problems. It's like, it's, it makes, it's like that old physics thing of, you know, trying to pick yourself up by your own socks. You can't can't do that. It's just not. So it's like, we all have to be involved in the solution because although it's hard to say for some people, we're all part of the problem, the people who are there, you know, holding these positions. So um, I appreciate that is a lovely way of phrasing it. Um, and to end on a hopeful note, um, you're a PhD student. You say you're in your final year, which is exciting. I uh, am married to someone who was a PhD student, so I remember. Um, it seems like the master's paper comes out, and then like a whole bunch of papers come out. It's like bup, 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 <laughs> and then you're done, right? <laughs> like that's kind of how it works. So, what are what else are you working on? And uh, when can you and I, when are we going to be co-authors on our first paper together? That's what I really want to know. Wink, wink. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, after uh, reading about your background too, I, I think that that's uh, imminent. Um, yeah. But I, oh my goodness, I've been so busy <laughs> these yeah. these last couple of years. Um, my I've been working on my dissertation, which is uh-huh. on uh, the, the surgical breast cancer care uh, among urban and rural 
black women in North Carolina um, examining differences over time in the surgical treatment of breast cancer uh, for these women and also the complication rates uh, among the different types of uh, breast cancer surgical procedures. Uh, I've also been working with the UNC School of Medicine Department of Surgery Mm -hmm. and I've gotten a chance to work on a lot of really fun projects with them and all sorts of different non-cancer areas too. uh, I took on this role to expand my technical big data skills and have gotten some really wonderful collaborators in the process too. So uh, in the near future, I'll be in uh, have some pediatric surgery research coming out, uh, burn surgery, gastrointestinal surgery. Uh, have really gotten to learn a lot uh, in these last uh, several months working with them, uh, and just looking forward to graduating next May. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, next May. And it's hard to believe that I'm entering my. I'm officially a, a fifth year student but uh we're on the home stretch and uh, i'm hoping to defend uh mid to late next spring for may 2021 graduation and then i'll be phd hey hey doctor um yeah and uh i kind of feel that like we have a visiting student our visiting resident right now he's actually a physician so he's a visiting physician and i was talking to him and i was like does he even really feel like you're here nothing really feels real right now you know because like you know what this job's supposed to look like and it doesn't really look like that. And I'm sure it's similar for you, you know, like people are distancing and everyone's got masks on and everybody's zooming all the time. So um, I imagine being a PhD student at this time also just feels sort of like an out of body experience. Just yeah. A little bit. It I doesn't mean, it, feel like you're living your life. You're living like a different version of your life kind of, or that is definitely uh, a, a, a <laughs> More than adequate way of describing it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think that's part of the reason why it's yeah. kind of surreal that my fourth year yeah. just passed me by like that because yeah. the spring semester virtually didn't exist since we've been at yeah. home for nearly yeah. all of it. I think what yeah. really made it feel uh, out of body was having uh, Zoom graduations for some of my colleagues getting their PhDs uh, awesome. this, this fall or uh, this spring. Um, it was unfortunate that we couldn't celebrate in, in person, but, uh, was it like a drive through kind of thing? Was everyone honking or was it all on zoom? How was it? Uh, I mean, we had a couple of, for my fellowship program, we had a couple of folks, uh, from different institutions. So they all handled it differently, but we tried to pull Uh. off some like surprise zoom parties with balloons ordered and things (laughs) like that, uh, to support each other. Cause I mean, it it wasn't the graduation that anybody had imagined for themselves. Um, so no, trying to make the most I, of the situation, but um, as an yeah, epidemiologist, yeah. I understand deeply the importance of the social distancing. Public health, so. you're like, yes, <laughs> public health. <laughs> you were on the public health bandwagon. Yeah. I totally appreciate that. I mean, my, you know, it was like my daughter graduated from preschool, and she had to have her photographs from a social distance you know <laughs> the photographer had to use some special lens or something and I was like oh my gosh crazy <laughs> but she really wanted to do it and wear her little cap and gown so what are you gonna do um so do you have any other uh closing notes or 
we'll just look forward to your future research and uh, keep an eye. And maybe once once you defend, you can come back on and tell us about it once you've survived. Yeah, that I agree. sounds like a plan. That sounds okay. like a plan to me. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, this has been deeper levels. Thank you everyone for listening, and a special thank you to Matthew Seaplack, my friend who composed my theme music, and to my husband who helps me feed all this into machine and makes the world think that I know what I'm doing. So thank you again, Maya. And-